marriage books that, that we do for premarital counseling sometimes, the guy makes this, a couple of really profound statements that were helpful to me. Hopefully they'll be helpful to you too. Uh, we are sinners married to sinners. That shouldn't be a shock to you, but sometimes it's a shock. We're sinners married to sinners, and we do that in a fallen world. And so I want to step that out a second and apply it to all of us. You are a sinner who is a friend of other sinners. Right? We're sinners who are friends with sinners. And then we have these friendships, we have these relationships within a fallen world. And so there's going to come a time in every one of your relationships, every one of your friendships, every one of your marriage relationships, there's going to come a time where you have to make a choice. And the choice is, are we going to press through the hard stuff and go to the next level of depth in our relationship? Or are we going to pull back to a comfortable and safe distance from each other? Because you are going to be a sinner. It's established. They are going to be a sinner, and that's not theoretical. You are going to hurt each other. You're going to neglect each other. You're going to do something One or the other is going to do something to hurt the other in friendships and marriage and all your relationships. And the choice of the moment determines whether this will be a rich and flourishing, life-giving relationship and friendship. Or will we retreat to our comfortable, safe, plastic distances from each other. And not apply the grace of God and the forgiveness of God to each other. When the text today, Paul is going to show what it's like to press on when it's hard. To show what it's like to press on when sin threatens to retreat the relationships to safe distances and to press on with the goal of reconciliation, genuine, deep, life-giving reconciliation coming out on the other side. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13. It is the last chapter, so we are in the final couple of weeks of this, this book. Um, I hope it's been profitable for you. It's It's been profitable to me in ways I never thought about. And so that's what God's word does. It's beautiful like that. But in it, we're going to just do the first four verses of the chapter. But we're wrapping up the, or we've wrapped up the last major section. Right? And it was on boasting and foolishness. Like it's really, really foolish to boast in ourselves, to boast in our abilities, to boast in our accomplishments. There's just nothing there. So the foolishness of that. Um, and then he's coming into the conclusion, the last chapter. So we're going to wrap up the book. We're going to give some final warnings. We're going to give some final calls to self-examination. And then we're going to give some final positive commands for community life. And so that'll break out the last chapter. But as we, as we leave the last section, there's one statement that's rattled in my heart ever since I, I worked on it last week. And I hope it will in yours. Paul says, I will spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. If we really want to make a difference in people's life, if we really want to press people to run after Jesus, there is no way to do that without a cost to ourselves. There is no way to do that without paying a price in us, spending our life for the sake of them. You can't do it on a part-time banker's hours when it fits. No offense if you're a banker in here, we love you. But you can't do it on those kind of timetables. It takes your life, it takes dying, it takes sacrifice. But I won't just spend my life for the sake of the souls of the people around me. I will have my life spent out to nothing for the sake of the people around me. And so that wraps up last week. And then as we go into the conclusion, it's a final warning. It's a final answer to the charges of weakness. See, weakness is what the cross looks like. 
Weakness is what Paul has looked like to the Corinthians in his relationship to them. But it's the weakness of the cross that opens up the hope of the resurrection. It's the weakness of the cross that opens up the hope of the resurrection and your salvation. But it's also the weakness of the cross in our relationships with each other. That open up the hope that there's a resurrection available for our relationships that are dying. That there's a resurrection hope for our relationships that are spent out. Let's listen as Paul says it. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. And I warn them now while absent. As I did when present on my second visit. That if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but he is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be willing to be weak. I pray we would be willing to be have parts of our lives nailed to the cross. Parts of our life sacrificed and, and die if it means giving life to the people around us. If it means giving restoration to the people around us between you and them. Restoration to the Lord. If it means reconciliation. God, we'd be willing to take the cross and the cross path. That resurrection hope might return. God, would you do that? Would you, would you bring resurrection to relationships today? Would you bring resurrection to relationships as we go through this time together? Would you give hope where there is hopelessness? And hope where there is despair? Would you do that today, Father? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. True reconciliation requires that we deal with hard issues. True reconciliation requires us to deal with hard issues. And so the first step in that, patiently try to win people from their sin. Patiently try to win people from their sin until the time for forceful correction comes. Patiently try to win people from their sin until the time for forceful correction comes. How many of you love comfort like I do? Come on, tell the truth. All right. I like it comfortable. I like my air conditioning at about 73 degrees at night. I'd take it lower, but I've got a family. I like the easier path. I like the path of least resistance. I don't like conflict. I don't like hard issues. I just, like, just, let me, let me just do me, okay? Maybe you're with me on that. We like it to be comfortable. We like ease. We like the path of least resistance. And nowhere does that desire that I can think of, nowhere does that desire for comfort collide with the purposes of God more directly than in the area of your relationships, the area of your friendships, the areas of your marriage, the areas of your parenting. Nowhere does your desire for comfort and God's purposes to bring genuine change in in each other's lives collide more deeply. Right, and so our mission statement, we want to make reproducing disciples, one of the primary hallmarks of which is that we are fostering genuine relationships of growth and change. Well, if you're a sinner and they're a sinner, growth and change is needed, but if you're a sinner and they're a sinner, collision's gonna happen. And then when it happens, am I gonna choose comfort? 
Am I going to choose to look past the issues? Am I going to choose to retreat to a safe distance? What am I going to choose in that moment? See, one of the ways we love comfort so much in our relationships is I've got friends and, and you know, I can, I can watch their lives and you're like, you see some spiritual drift, but it's easier not to say anything and, and talk about football, right? Or you see little hurtful words they say or little hurtful patterns in their life or you see little, little cracks in their marriage and you see them. But man, it's just so much more comfortable not to say anything. It's so much more comfortable to just joke about it or to just move on or just, that's who they are. It's not a big deal. That works for them. It's a lot more comfortable. But it's a lot less helpful to the purposes of God in their life. And so are you willing to love people enough to kill the idol of your own comfort? To walk in and help bring the truth of God and the gospel of God into words and patterns and little thoughts and little habits and little things that show cracks in relationships and cracks in their walk with God. Are you willing to break down and kill the idol of comfort to get there? Because God's purposes for your relationships is that we help each other grow in Jesus. We help each other change to be more like Jesus. But comfort's going to have to die for that to happen. Now, I probably need to step out and warn you. That does not make you the great fixer of humanity. His name is Jesus. The job's taken. But it does mean that I am willing to rip the logs out of my own eye, my own pride, my own selfishness, my own God of comfort, my own little patterns. And I'm willing to humble myself and, and, and make sure that the, the logs out of my eyes so that I can humbly look at you to help you not look, stand up over you and look down on you when I'm trying to help and rescue you. Right? And so will you let comfort die for relationships that fulfill the purposes of God happen? That's the point of this first section here, I believe. Paul is wrapping up the letter and he sharpens up his focus. I'm coming for this other visit. I've been preparing for this third visit. I've been preparing to show up back on the scene in Corinth. And so he's wrapping that up. And so he's going to answer and then flip the script, right? So the final charge of weakness, he's going to, he's answered these charges all book long. And now he's going to flip the script on them and he's going to, but I'm bringing charges myself when I show up the next time. So that's, that's the first part of it. And then the second part of it is to give a gospel perspective on these complaints of Paul's weakness. You're weak, you're weak, you're weak. Okay, well, let me show you who else is. There's a cross. And my weakness is a cross kind of weakness. Because my goal is a cross kind of goal to bring about resurrection in your life with God and our lives with each other. So let's look at it. This will be the third time I am coming to you. And so the first time was his first time there when he founded the church. He spent about two years forming the church of, of Corinth, second longest ministry he had in any city. So he spent two years to found the church. Then he left for a period of time. He heard about a set of issues. He came back on the second visit, which is called the sorrowful visit or the painful visit. And so Paul shows up to confront the issues of the church. He shows up to, to deal with the sins and the, and the brokenness and the false teachers that have come in. And he's going to deal with it. But instead what he finds is there's a controlling majority of the church that is actually opposing him. And they mock him, they ridicule him, and they actually shame him out of town. So they run him out of town in humiliation. Now at this point, Paul could call down apostolic thunder. 
right? Paul has the power of God. Paul has the right because they are in the wrong. And so Paul could have on this visit said with indignation, with, with a righteous and a godly severity, no, that's it. We're going to deal with it and you're going to get right or God's going to deal with you. But instead he bore the weight of humiliation to walk out of town in shame. Why? So that the hope of reconciliation remains open that he's pursuing in this book. Would you be willing to be humiliated when you had the power to stop it? If that's what it took for life to come back into people and life to come back into relationships. Because that's what he's doing here. I'm coming for the third visit. He says, and then every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so what does that mean? That is the Old Testament standard. It's in, let me, let me make sure I get my reference right. That's in Deuteronomy 19.15. It's the Old Testament uh, standard of evidence. And so God set out rules of evidence. There's no DNA. There's no fingerprints. There's, there's none of the modern forensic technology. And so God puts a standard of evidence on the people in order to protect the innocent from false accusations, to protect the innocent from being swept up in the evil plots of others. And then a proper standard of evidence so that serious crimes that had serious consequences had a proper standard applied to them. And so it wasn't he said, she said, he said, he said, she said, she said. Right? There's a, there's a standard that if we're gonna jack somebody's life up, then we have to have a standard to do that by, and we won't do it otherwise. So on the evidence of two or three witnesses, that's the Old Testament standard. God's instituted standard for evidence. Right? And so on the evidence of two or three witnesses, but what is he saying it here for? Like, I mean, read the flow and it's like, what is he doing? This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned. What is he saying? He's saying, when I come the third time to the church, when I show back up in Corinth, I am going to call a formal legal proceeding to deal with those who are still in rebellion or still trapped in sin. And what he's saying is, I'm going to bring the community of faith together and we will institute the proceedings. We will be involved. We will make a decision on the evidence of two or three witnesses of what has happened. Right? And so he's like, I'm coming I'm going to file formal charges. But what I want you to notice about this, this isn't just Paul is going to sit up on the stage and render a verdict. Paul is going to call the community together to deal with the issues of the community. Paul is going to call the church together to deal with the issues of the church. And you know what I think that says? Growth is a community project, not an individual project. And if you want your spiritual life to be individual, and if you want your spiritual life to be separate, and if you want your spiritual life to be isolated from the gaze of others, Proverbs has something to say about that, and it's not good. Right? Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he rages against all sound judgment. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning in my class. You notice this in your life. When you begin to drift from God... You begin to drift from community. When you begin to drift from God, you begin to hide parts of your life and parts of yourself or your entire life. You you, you withdraw from community. But growth is a community project. It is not individualistic. Growth is a corporate job. You are placed into the family of God with responsibilities to and for each other. And if you want to do this individualistically, you have missed the gospel or a big part of it. But growth isn't just a community project. Fighting sin is a community project. 
You think you can do it on your own. You think you can read your Bible and pray more. You think you can say no to your temptations. You think you can stick enough guardrails over your life to fight sin, and you can't. You must have other believers alongside your life to grow, and you must have other believers alongside your life to fight the sin that you have in your life and the temptations you have in your life, just like we all do. It's not meant to be done alone. And that wars against every fiber of your being. It wars against every fiber of my being. But it's exactly what God desires. And so Paul is calling the community of faith together to war against and to call back to faithfulness the people that, that have strayed in Corinth. And so look, I'm, I'm coming on the third time. I'm filing formal charges. I warned those who sinned before and all the others just like I warned them now when I'm absent the way I did when I'm present. And so I want you to listen to those words. I have warned them. And I have warned them over a long period of time. I've warned them over multiple ways. This is not Paul being flippant. This isn't Paul being angry. This is a large protracted process where Paul has been trying to win back their affections to Christ and win back their relationship with him. And he's been doing it for a long time. But, but who are those who sinned before? Right? They sinned before and all the others. We don't know exactly. But if you read through 1 Corinthians, there's no shortage of sins that have to be dealt with. The church is factioned up. I'm Paul, I'm Apollos, I'm Peter, I'm Jesus, right? They faction the church off into little groups to make power struggles or to, to gain status over each other. So maybe it's division. They were good at that. 2 Corinthians, the same thing. Or maybe it was sexual sins, right? Those were very prevalent throughout 1 Corinthians and very prevalent throughout 2 Corinthians. And, and it actually have in the last set of verses we just did, that was a key sin that he's afraid he's going to find when he gets back to Corinth. So maybe it's that. We don't exactly know. There's plenty. Maybe it's idolatry, division, whatever. But he tells them that have sinned before, that have been warned, and all the others. So he's bringing everybody that's that's at a level of sin that has to be dealt with formally and officially and, and big enough. Maybe they were part of the rebellion and the factions. We don't know. But look at it. He warned them. He warned them in person. He warned them when he was absent. He warned them by letters. And letters and letters. So I want you to just trace the timeline of Paul's warning in their lives so that you see how patiently you've got to deal with each other and we've got to deal with each other. So you see how, how, what links we would go to for each other so that the work of Jesus to restore us to Jesus can flourish. And the work of Jesus to restore us to each other can flourish. And so think about the timeline, right? So Paul knows about the sin, 1 Corinthians, right? Paul goes and he makes an initial visit. Here's what's wrong. Here's what's going on. Here's how you get back to Christ. Here's the resurrection. Here's Jesus. He's beautiful. Come back. And he bears the absolute humiliation of the apostle being run out of town on a rail. And he takes it. He takes it. Because if he had called for the vote then, he could have destroyed them. But he couldn't have restored them. And so he does it. Then he goes home and he writes what's called the severe letter, which we read about, I think it's in chapter 2. Here's the severe letter, and he, he challenges them very directly. He's very bold and straightforward in dealing with their issues. Why? Because he wants them to come back to Christ. He wants them to be restored. And then he sends Titus. And Titus makes a visit, and Titus addresses the issues. Still going. And now he writes Second Corinthians for the same purpose. 
be restored to the Lord. Be reconciled to each other. Be reconciled to me. And so he has warned and he has warned and he has shown, here's Jesus, here's the cross, here's the resurrection, here's the gospel, here's my love for you, here's what God's done in your life, come back to him. And he's done it over and over, over a pretty substantial amount of time to get to this point. And so are we willing to be patient? Are we willing to walk out the restoration of each other on the long haul? I'll be honest, Chris doesn't like to deal with issues. Chris would like to sit in his office, read his emails and write his sermons. And if y'all could like leave me alone unless you want to buy me lunch, Chris would be a very happy man. Chris's flesh would be a very happy flesh, let's say it that way. But that is not the work of the Spirit, is it? So if Chris does have to deal with this, can we deal with it quickly? Like, let's check the box and let's get it done. Dude, are you going to repent? No? All right, see ya. Yeah? Great, let's go. Maybe you're that way. Like, I don't want to deal with issues, but if I have to, can we just do it? And I've been so thankful because we have some great men who lead in this church. Six years now, I've been around and they've been helping me curb my... Uh, fast running nature to teach me the wisdom of exactly what this passage is saying warn and wait warn and wait warn and wait because the goal isn't to get through the goal isn't to get get your friend on the mat the goal isn't to to put your friend beat your friend down the goal is that people fall back in love with Jesus Christ at the end of the process that's the goal it's always the goal And so whatever time it takes to walk people to that, it's worth it. And if they can be reconciled to each other and reconciled to you, it's worth it. Keep walking. And that's what Paul does. But look at this. It doesn't, it's not forever. See, Paul has been charged with weakness because he hadn't done anything about this yet. And so Paul's like, I've warned you. I've shown up and warned you. I've written and warned you. I've written and warned you. I'm showing up again. And his goal has been restoration, right? And so chapter 7, many repented. And so his goal has been accomplished. People are back in love with Jesus. So it was worth the shame. And he's hoping more will will repent. More will be restored before he shows up again. But when he shows up again, look what he says. I won't spare them. Don't think this is Paul's weakness. This is Paul's humility and desire to be in the purposes of God for people to fall in love with Jesus again. And so I will warn you, but there will time where my warning, there's a time when the cross, there's a time when the gospel will reach the point where it demands a forceful correction, a forceful call to action, a forceful decision on the part of of the believers to deal with it. And when I show up, that's going to happen, but I don't want it to happen. I want you to be restored. And so I will not spare them is how he ends it. And so are you willing to kill the comfort of your life for God's purposes in the life of your friend? Are you willing to kill the comfort of your life for God's purposes in your marriage? Are you willing to kill the comfort of your life for God's purposes in restoring you back to your kids? Are you willing to Kill the comfort of your life to restore a relationship with your parents that is broken, your boss that is broken, your co-workers that are broken. Are you willing to kill comfort? And you're going to see in the next section, are you willing to crawl up on a cross 
to see if resurrection might come in your relationships. So the first step, patiently try to win people from their sin. Step in and walk beside them as long as you can. Until the time comes where forceful correction comes. Secondly, be vulnerable and weak if that's what it takes for Christ to bring restoration. Be vulnerable and weak if that's what it takes for Christ to bring um, reconciliation. None of us want to be weak. And so many of our relationships are in trouble because I want to be the strong one. I want to be the right one. So many of our relationships are distant and filled with coldness because I don't want to be the first to humble myself. I don't want to cross the line back to get to the, to, to my friend. I don't want to cross the line to get back to my spouse. I don't want to be the first to say I'm sorry because that means I lost. And you think about how foolish it is, right? When you say it out loud, how dumb is it that I care if I win or lose because who wins if we stay separated? No one. Who wins if a friendship dies that was worth pursuing? No one. But I'm going to be right. And I'm going to win. And when we do our relationships in a way that we want to be right, and in a way that we want to win, we all end up losing at the same time. And so our marriages become cold wars because we don't want to step across. The aisles of the church might as well be a moat Separating castle walls from each other because it separates us from people that have hurt us in the past. And so we just keep the moat and the walls between us. And so we, our relationships are laid waste because we want to be strong and we want to win and we want to be right. But there is a better way. There's a better way. Doesn't look like a better way on the, on the front end. It doesn't feel like a better way. You know what it looks like? It looks like a cross. And not the pretty gold kind around your neck, the wooden kind that drives nails, drives nails through you to put you on it. It's that kind of weakness, it's that kind of vulnerability, it's that kind of death to self that sometimes it takes if resurrection's gonna come on the other side. Are any of us willing to take the cross path back towards each other? The cross path back to intimacy. The cross path back to friendship. Because on the other side of a cross is a resurrection. And the resurrection is a deeper and better thing than what it costs you to get there. So I beg you to choose the cross, not distance. To embrace weakness and vulnerability if that's what restoration takes. Let's look at it in the text. So I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. And so you see, not spare Christ speaking in me. There's a connection between this accusation of Paul of weakness, this accusation of Paul. Paul, you're not an apostle. You don't have the kind of authority you think you have because you didn't bring the thunder. You got run out of town in shame. And so even his leaving in shame has brought a new accusation against him. You, Christ must not be in you because when Christ is in you, you deal with people that oppose you. When Christ is in you, you look victorious. When Christ is in you, you step on people that mess with you. According to the Corinthians. According to their false apostles. And so, you want to know Christ is in me? I'm going to come and deal with this later. 
But the way I show that Christ is in me is not by power struggle, not by arrogance, not by chopping the heads off of my opponents, not by walking over the top of people, not by creating a church that fights over social standing. That's not how I know you know that Christ is in me. You don't know how Christ is in me? The fact that you're a church and you weren't a church before. You don't know how Christ is speaking in me and his commission of my life is true because you were dead and now you're alive. You don't know that my commission is true The gospel has borne fruit in your lives. That's how you know Christ is speaking in me. But just so you know, I will come and I'll be as strong as you want me to the next time. I don't want to be. It's not my goal. But I will be. I won't spare them so that you know Christ is speaking in me. But notice this. He doesn't then run from the charge of weakness, does he? In fact, he embraces the charge of weakness. He's like, yeah, I'm weak. Yes, I'll embrace weakness because weakness looks like Jesus to me. You know the cross, you remember that? See, the false apostles wanted to have this arrogance and this pride. The false apostles wanted a resurrection with no death and no cross. The false apostles wanted a victory without a defeat. The false apostles wanted some salvation that didn't have death and blood attached to it. But there's no such gospel as that. There's only a gospel that has a cross and a resurrection to follow. And that's what Paul drives to. That's exactly what Paul drives to. Yeah, I'm weak, just like Jesus was weak. Now, Jesus is not weak among you. He just might look that way, right? The cross looks like weakness. The cross looks like humiliation. The cross looks like shame from our fleshly eyes. But that's not what the cross is. Jesus wasn't weak among you when he took the cross. That was the very act of God that it took to save you and to give victory to your life. So Jesus wasn't weak when he crawled up on a cross. He was powerful, right? He was powerful in his work among you. He was powerful in the miracle signs and wonders he did among you. He was powerful when a bunch of dead people became alive spiritually by his gospel. He was mighty among you. And then he zooms out and he looks at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he says it this way. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. He was crucified in weakness. It was utter humiliation for the sovereign God of the universe to let a bunch of people put him on a cross. It was utter humiliation and weakness when these people walk by and shake their heads at him. And they say, and they mock him, save yourself, right? You saved all these people, save yourself. Mocking. If you're really the son of God, come down. Mocking. If God's really your father, let him save you. Mocking. And these two sorry criminals that deserve death hanging beside him, join in. That looks weak. That looks utterly humiliating. But it was the weakness of the cross that provided the victory of the resurrection. It was the weakness of the cross, the death of the cross, that was a voluntary sacrifice to give life to other people, to give exaltation to other people. He was crucified in weakness, mocked and shamed, voluntarily sacrificing himself, letting shame come on himself to give life to you. But he lives by the power of God. Resurrection comes, and so the cross isn't the end of the story. Resurrection is the end of the story. Vindication is the end of the story. 
And so it's a weakness to provide life to others that ends in a vindication by God and a resurrection by God. And so that's the framework Paul wants to use for his own weakness, for his own relationships with the, with the Corinthians. But that's also what he wants to press on you to believe. If you think a little bit of church can wipe the stains of your sin and your enmity to God from you, you've missed it. God, the eternal son, did not die on a cross and bleed out for a little bit of church to rescue you. He died on a cross for your sins, not just your sins, the sins of the whole world. And he was buried and he rose again from the dead, vindicated by God to offer you life. He was crucified in weakness, sacrificed for your own life. And he was raised in power to vindicate everything that he said. And this is the framework Paul uses. And so we were weak among you. I was mocked by you. I was slandered by you. I was shamed by you. I was hurt by you. I was, parts of me died for you. It was a cross kind of weakness though. It was a cross kind of weakness that allowed myself to be shamed and allowed parts of myself to die and my pride to be killed. It was a cross kind of weakness. Why? So that my dealings with you would live by the power of God. So that my weakness would be a voluntary sacrifice to restore life between you and Jesus. So that my voluntary sacrifice would give life to the relationship between you and I. And so I was powerful by the power of God. I live by the power of God. Our relationship can flourish again by the power of God because there's a resurrection. And so I want to invite you to embrace the cross in your relationships. Embrace the cross in your friendships. Embrace the cross in your marriage. Embrace the cross in every relationship. Because it's only in embracing the cross that the hope and the space for resurrection to come back into your relationships. For life to come back in what feels dead. When the last spark of your marriage feels like it's about to go out, embrace the cross so that resurrection can come. When the last hurt that you intend to ever take from your friend happens, embrace the cross, a willing death, so that life may just possibly come back. What relationship are you in right now that needs a resurrection? Resurrections don't come without a cross. They don't come without somebody taking the first step back. They don't come without somebody saying, I'll be vulnerable. They don't come without somebody saying, I'll be the weak one. They don't come without somebody saying, I'll look like death. If that's what it takes for life to come back. Embrace the cross so that there is space for resurrection in your relationships. And there's space for resurrection in the relationships of the people you care about to God. That's what it looks like. That's what Paul's restoration looks like. He's willing to be weak and vulnerable if that's what it takes for them to be restored to the Lord. And you know the beautiful thing is? Most of them are. It was worth it. Most of them, chapter 7, turned back and had a godly sorrow that led to repentance. Most of them grieved enough to actually take active steps to, to restoration. And so he died. He faced shame and humiliation. His pride was assaulted. 
But through the cross came a new life in every one of those believers. And through the cross, a new life came between him and they. Is that worth it to you? Is it worth it to you to look weak, to look vulnerable, to embrace a cross? On the hopes that maybe, maybe the resurrection of God can flow in again. If you want to have relationships that matter in your life, you're going to have to press on when it's hard and not withdraw. If you want to have relationships that give you life, then it means you're going to have to go walk through sin. It's going to happen. It means you're going to have to die a little or a lot. That's what it's going to take. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we bow. And Lord, in my flesh, I hate the the thought of death. I hate the thought of a cross. I hate the thought of losing. And so show me, show us gain. Show us the eternal gain of falling back in love with Jesus. The eternal gain of our friends running after Jesus again. The eternal gain, God, of relationships being restored. God, would you do that in us? Would you do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.